This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, good morning again, everyone. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin our fourth session together. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to be here at GYC. And we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on what really is truth for this time. And I pray that you would guide us now through this next hour as we consider the authority that you have delegated to your appropriate bodies here on this earth. May we be willing to submit to you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for this presentation is Confusion on Ecclesiology and Church Authority. So in other words, Confusion on the Theology of the Church and Church Authority. You do realize that the Bible does teach a theology of church and church organization and that God has delegated authority to his church here on this earth. And one of the things that we see as a problem is that, especially in our modern day in society, people do not like the idea of submission. And people like to fight for their own rights, for individual conscience, and it's become a matter of confusion among a lot of different people. So we're going to go through a few ideas to try to come to a better understanding of what's happening in the church today. You know, Revelation chapter 12, 17 clearly identifies the Seventh-day Adventist church as God's end-time remnant church. They're the only church on earth that keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy. And Ellen White has this amazing statement in Publishing Ministry, page 389. It is a certain that we have the truth is that God lives. Isn't that amazing? It is as certain that we have the truth as that God lives and Satan with all his arts and hellish power cannot change the truth of God into a lie. While the great adversary will try his utmost to make of none effect, the word of God, truth must go forth as a lamp that burneth. So, so this church, our church, is the church that has the truth as certain as that God lives. Actually, the Apostles, page 12, says, During ages of spiritual darkness, the church of God has been as a city set on a hill from age to age. Through successive generations, the pure doctrines of heaven have been unfolding within its borders, enfeebled and defective as it may appear. The church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme regard. It is the theater of his grace in which he delights to reveal his power to transform hearts. Now, the reality is, and the book of Hebrews tells us this, that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And, you know, interestingly, sometimes this has been missed. Christ says to his lukewarm Adventists, if you don't repent, if you stay lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. In other words, you will be taken out of the body of Christ. And so there is a shaking that is coming to Adventism. Early writings, page 270 says, I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. Some will not bear this testimony. They will rise up against it. And this is what will cause a shaking among God's people. So if your church is opposed to the preaching of the prophetic message that identifies areas in the church that need to come up higher, that's going to lead to conflict because some don't want to hear the straight testimony from Jesus, who is the faithful and true witness. I saw that the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heeded. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. This testimony must work deep repentance. All who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. Now, let me just say a few things to you. The way the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as it, as it appears right now, is not how it will be on the other side of the shaking and when Jesus comes. If we're honest with ourselves, we are a really sick church right now. And the reason I say that is, is that Jesus says, you make me want to throw up. We're a sick church. 
and we can't act like everything is okay when it's not okay. There are some serious problems in the Seventh-day Adventist church right now, and I say this as someone who loves this church with all of my heart. I've grown up in this church from the time I was born, and I've made my own decision to be a Seventh-day Adventist um, for, for time and eternity till Jesus comes. I am a Seventh-day Adventist. I believe that this is God's church. But the way this church is right now, it's a sick church. We have schools teaching Darwinian evolution under the guise of academic freedom. We have schools that are creating LGBT support groups on campus, not to help them understand the Bible and lead them to Christ, but to encourage them in their lifestyle. We have unions in an entire division or more standing up to the authority of the General Conference. We are facing the greatest crisis yet in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There's been other crises that have come before. Some of them perhaps are still unresolved. But this crisis is, that we are facing right now is a crisis that to, to date we have not seen of such a great magnitude. The one thing that makes me hopeful is that the prophet that we believe in said that this was going to happen, right? So we do not know exactly how this will all play out, and that's what can be unsettling. The comforting fact is that we have been told that the ship will go through. Now, Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 380, the church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. It remains, while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out, the chaff separated from the precious wheat. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless it must take place. None but those who have been overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and true, without spot or stain of sin, without guile in their mouths. We must be divested of our self-righteousness and arrayed in the righteousness of Christ. Now notice, the church may appear as about to fall, but it does not. And here's the thing. Some people say, I'm so fed up with the church, I'm out of here. I'm going to start a purer church. But look, the, the righteous will remain while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out. It's carnal thinking to sift yourself out of the body of Christ. And listen, if all the good people left the body of Christ, we would be in a really bad state. Please stay. And for that reason alone, but also because at the end, it's going to be the sinners in Zion who will be sifted out. So please don't tell me that there's a visible church and an invisible church. Because this is a visible action that takes place where the sinners in Zion are sifted out. While the righteous remain, that's something that can be seen. It's not an invisible thing. And we're told that it is a terrible ordeal. Nevertheless, it must take place. You know, sometimes we're somewhat conflict-averse and we don't like to engage in conflict. And yet the reality is, is that God needs spiritual warriors who are willing to stand up for what's right during this terrible ordeal. And those, only those who will stand are those who are overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. Now, story of redemption. How, how, how do we have rebellion in the church Story of Redemption, page 15, there was contention among the angels. Lucifer and his sympathizers were striving to reform the government of God. So get this, they were just trying to make heaven better. I mean, they weren't there to turn into demons. Their goal was not to become the demons of the universe. Their goal was to make the government of God better. There's some things that could be improved upon. They were discontented and unhappy because they could not look into his unsearchable wisdom and ascertain his purposes in exalting his son and endowing him with such unlimited power and command. They rebelled against the authority of the son. Which is why I talked about this yesterday. You see the same spirit in the anti-Trinitarian movement where when you make the son less than the father, that's rebelling against the authority of the son who is equal with God. And so Lucifer was trying to reform the government of God, and he rebelled against the authority of the Son. Now, interestingly, Ellen White has a statement. This is Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 393. That's a two-page slide. And she says, I question whether genuine rebellion is ever curable. 
Boy, once you get it in your mind that you are doing a work of, a ref- of reform, you're the Martin Luther of Adventism, and you're going to nail your 95 theses on the wall, and you are standing for the right, here I stand, I can do no other. But you're actually being a rebel. It's hard to stop thinking that way. And Ellen White says, I question whether genuine, genuine rebellion is ever curable. Study in Patriarchs and Prophets the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. This rebellion was extended, including more than two men. It was led by 250 princes of the congregation, men of renown. These were leaders of Israel, not just low-level lay people. These were leaders in Israel that were part of this rebellion. Call rebellion by its right name and apostasy by its right name and then consider that the experience of the ancient people of God with all its objectionable features was faithfully chronicled to pass into history. The scriptures, the scripture declares these things are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And if men and women who have the knowledge of the truth are so far separated from their great leader that they will take the great leader of apostasy and name him Christ our righteousness, it is because they have not sunk deep into the minds of the truth. They are not able to distinguish the precious ore from the base metal. And this is an amazing statement. She says that there are people in the church who separate from Christ and they join in the spirit of the great leader of apostasy and they name Lucifer Christ our righteousness. Wow. There's something to be said for not submitting to the authority of Christ and then claiming that you're still following him. Letter 15, 1892, the history of the rebellion of Dathan and Abiram is being repeated and will be repeated till the close of time. Who will be on the Lord's side? Who will be deceived and in their turn become deceivers? Now let's look at this rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. We find it in the Bible in Numbers chapter 16 and 17. There's an entire chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 395 to 405, that is dedicated to discussing this rebellion. Korah was the ringleader, and Dathan and Abiram conspired with him. And Korah was actually a cousin of Moses and Aaron, so he was family. And sadly, sometimes even in the church, family members find themselves on opposite sides of what's happening today. Now, what we see from this rebellion is that it was a deep-laid plot and conspiracy against God's appointed leader, They were disaffected that they could not go into the promised land, and they blamed Moses for leading them to die in the wilderness so he could be a prince over them. So there's this disaffection. This is after the spies have come back with an evil report, and so God says you're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness, one day for each year that you spent spying out the land. So Patriarchs and Prophets 396 gets into this issue. Professing great interest in the prosperity of the people, they first whispered their discontent to one another and then to leading men of Israel. Their insinuations were so readily received that they ventured still further and at last they really believed themselves to be actuated by zeal for God. So be careful when you hear even leaders in the church who claim to be professing zeal for the cause of God. If you have zeal for the cause of God, supposedly, but you're not willing to submit to his delegated authority, that should call into question your motives. And so there's this interest in the prosperity of the people. And then the next page, Patriarchs and Prophets 397 says, they were successful in alienating 250 princes, men of renown in the congregation, with these strong and influential supporters. They felt confident of making a radical change in the government and greatly improving upon the administration of Moses and Aaron. Jealousy had given rise to envy and envy to rebellion. Now notice, Lucifer wanted to reform the government of God Korah, Dathan, and Abiram wanted to improve upon the government of Israel, and God was their leader, and he had delegated authority to Moses, and so now they are in rebellion to the work of God. Now, Patriarchs and Prophets 397 goes on to say, the next work of the conspirators was with the people. To those who are in the wrong and deserving of reproof, there is nothing more pleasing than to receive sympathy and praise. 
And thus Korah and his associates gained the attention and enlisted the support of the congregation. The charge that the murmurings of the people had brought upon them, the wrath of God, was declared to be a mistake. And if you notice carefully, if you look in the Adventist church today, there are two classes in the church. Ellen White tells us this, that two parties will be developed, the wheat and the tares will grow together until the harvest. And in one class there is this this tendency towards worldliness, people who are lowering the standards. Hey, what's wrong with having coffee for church? That will bring more people out from the community to come to our church on Sabbath morning. So let's do coffee and donuts. And then we're having movie night and we're starting to wear jewelry and all sorts of stuff. And so these people are like, yes, you the, What's happening in the church now when they see this division taking place, they're saying, these leaders speak for me. I'm so glad that there's leaders in the church who don't judge me for what I'm doing. And so you have these two different approaches within the church. And so you have those who don't reprove, they don't um, call people out for going against the clearly revealed will of God. And so they go on to say, Cordathan and Abraham, they said that the congregation were not at fault since they desired nothing more than their rights, but that Moses was an overbearing ruler, that he had reproved the people as sinners when they were a holy people and the Lord was among them. In other words, look, if you're declared righteous and covered by his righteousness, even if you keep sinning, you're a holy people. Don't worry about it. A false gospel will always lead to rebellion. Patriarchs and Prophets 398, in this work of disaffection, there was greater union and harmony among the discordant elements of the congregation than had ever before existed. Korah's success with the people increased his confidence and confirmed him in his belief that the usurpation of authority by Moses, if unchecked, would be fatal to the liberties of Israel. The church is violating my conscience. I'm going to use my conscience to stand up to this authority of the church. He also claimed that God had opened the matter to him and had authorized him to make a change in the government before it should be too late. So here's what we see. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram bring the rebellion out into the open once they have enough support. Moses had not suspected this plot, and it was clear that the majority of the congregation had sympathy with the rebellion because, hey, maybe we still can go on to the promised land. Now, this next statement is from Patriarchs and Prophets 399. Moses is hoping that Dathan and Abiram aren't so far gone as Korah. So this statement says, Dathan and Abiram had not taken so bold a stand as had Korah, and Moses, hoping that they might have been drawn into the conspiracy without having become wholly corrupted, summoned them to appear before him that he might hear their charges against him. But they would not come, and they insolently refused to acknowledge his authority. Their reply uttered in the hearing of the congregation was... Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? Are you kidding me? So they were in slavery and God says, I'm going to take you, take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're saying, our land of bondage was a land flowing with milk and honey. This world that we live in is a good world. People are good. We just need to be part of the community. Why do we have to be so distinct? And they're like, is it a small thing to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or give us us, given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. In other words, we haven't gone to heaven yet. We've been preaching that Jesus has been coming since 1844, and we're still here. Why are we talking about heaven? We need to focus on just what we're doing here on this earth. So thus they applied to the scene of their bondage the very language in which the Lord had described the promised inheritance. You know, the Bible says in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty three, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as wickedness and idolatry. You know, I said this yesterday about people who are into fanaticism, such as, you know, the 2520 or anti-Trinitarianism or feast-keeping or things of that nature, date-setting that probation's going to close for Adonis in 2019. And you try to reason with them, and it's like trying to reason with a young person who's in love with someone they shouldn't be. You can't reason with them. And when people are in rebellion and they are convinced that they are in the right, you can't reason with them. They're like under this bewitching influence. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all their families were swallowed up as the earth 
opened up. And Moses said, if these men die a natural death, God hasn't spoken by me. But if God does a new thing, you will know that the Lord has spoken by me. And they're swallowed up. And then the 250 men of renown, they witnessed the death of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And then they were devoured by fire. What was the reaction from the congregation the next day? You have killed the people of the Lord. Really? They got swallowed up supernaturally and burned by fire. And you're going to say you have killed the people of the Lord? That's why Ellen White says, I question whether genuine rebellion is ever curable. God can bring fire down from heaven and you still think those are the people of the Lord. When your heart is set in rebellion, even supernatural manifestations will not convince you to follow the way of truth. And so the people, speaking of the people, patriarchs and prophets, 401, they have been flattered by Korah and his company until they really believed themselves to be very good people and that they had been wronged and abused by Moses. Should they admit that Korah and his company were wrong and Moses right, then they would be compelled to receive as the word of God the sentence that they must die in the wilderness. They were not willing to submit to this. So again, you see, with rebellion comes a lack of submission. And they tried to believe that Moses had deceived them. They had fondly cherished the hope that a new order of things was about to be established in which praise would be substituted for reproof and ease for anxiety and conflict. The men who had perished had spoken flattering words and had professed great interest and love for them. And the people concluded that Korah and his companions must have been good men and that Moses had by some means been the cause of their destruction. Now notice this. This is Patriarchs and Prophets 403. In the rebellion of Korah is seen the working out upon a narrower stage of the same spirit that led to the rebellion of Satan in heaven. It was pride and ambition that prompted Lucifer to complain of the government of God and to seek the overthrow of the order which had been established in heaven. Since his fall, it has been his object to infuse the same spirit of envy and discontent, the same ambition for position and honor into the minds of men. He thus worked upon the minds of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram to arouse the desire for self-exaltation and excite envy, distrust, and rebellion. Now listen to this. Satan caused them to reject God as their leader by rejecting the men of God's appointment. Now people will say, oh, Christ is the only head of the church. He's the only one I'm going to submit to. But if you don't submit to his delegated authority within the church, you are rejecting him also. They rejected the men of God's appointment, and that thus meant that they rejected God as their leader. You can't say that you're following God when you refuse to submit to the authority that he has delegated here on this earth. Now, interestingly, the book of Jude kind of talks about rebellion as well. We see this false gospel in verses 3 and 4 that turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And there's certain men who creep in unawares who turn this gospel into um, a false gospel. Those who refuse to submit to God and the true gospel rebel against God. And we see the illustration. Jude verse 5 says the children of Israel um, were destroyed for those who did not believe. Jude verse, verse 6, it says the fallen angels left the glory of heaven because they wouldn't submit to Christ. They're now waiting for the day of judgment. Jude verse 11, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. There we see Korah again. All of them refused to submit to the authority of God. Cain wouldn't submit to the true way of worship. Balaam would not submit to God's voice in trying to pronounce a curse on Israel, and Korah would not submit to Moses as the true leader. The false gospel, where the grace of God is turned into lasciviousness, in other words, the grace of God gives us license to sin. God will cover me while I keep sinning. So if he covers me while I'm still sinning, does it really matter if I don't submit to the authority that God has placed over me? So false gospel leads to rebellion against God. So let's look at an application. Korah was dissatisfied with the delay into the promised land. He led a rebellion against the leaders of God's appointment. He turned God's people against the government and order of God. And he was successful in getting a majority of the congregation to have sympathy towards his work. Just because you're in the majority doesn't necessarily mean you're right, or vice versa. Are you following the word of the Lord? Now notice what 
manuscript for 1883, it's Evangelism 696, says, For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. Now look at this. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. Now people say, oh, we can't do anything to hasten the coming of Christ. Well, if we can delay it, why couldn't we hasten it? And we've delayed it by having the same sins as ancient Israel, and that is unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion. And the same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan, and neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, unconsecration, and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. Worldliness unconsecration, unbelief, strife among the Lord's people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow for so many years. Don't blame the Lord for the delay. It's our fault. Now, notice this next statement, letter 184, 1901, Evangelism 696. We may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. You know what insubordination is. Refusal submit to, to submit to the authority that God has placed in his church. Oh, I'm not going to subordinate myself to that. I have an individual conscience. We may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years as did the children of Israel, but for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequence of their own wrong course of action. Now, here's some things I want you to think about as we look at the current issues. Satan's core issue in the great controversy is his discontent with Christ's authority. It all started in heaven with Satan's discontent for the authority of Christ. Some of the major heresies happening today all circulate around undermining God's authority and or his delegated sources of authority. Anti-Trinitarians denigrate Christ and the Holy Spirit's authority by claiming that they are less than what they really are because both are God. Gender equality destroys the biblical model in the home. Now, by the way, I believe that men and women are equal, but I do not believe in the feminism movement that destroys the order of authority in the home. Gender equality destroys the biblical model in the home where the husband is the head, as Ephesians 5.23 says. Thus, Christ's delegated authority in the home is destroyed. Now, notice what Ellen White says in Testimonies, Volume 1, page 457. Those who feel called out to join the movement in favor of women's rights and the so-called dress reform might as well sever all connection with the third angel's message. The spirit which attends the one cannot be in harmony with the other. The scriptures are plain upon the relations and rights of men and women. Did you see that? The scriptures are plain. Someone says the husband is the head of the wife and that the that if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work because if he can't rule his, and, but if he can't rule his own house, well, how can he take care of the church of God? And yet the husband is the head of the wife. Then how could he not be the head in the church? Because that's a delegated authority. Christ has delegated the husband to be the head in the home. And likewise in the church, he delegates that men would be the head in the church. Everyone's equal, but they have different roles. The scriptures are playing upon the relations and rights of men and women. And Ellen White says, if you feel called out to join the favor, the movement in favor of women's rights, which says, let's just break down all these barriers. We're social justice warriors and we're going to say there's no difference. Let's just all do the same thing. You might as well sever all connections with the third angel's message. Now, some people say, but before sin, there, there was no difference between Adam and Eve. He was not the head, but that's not true. Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 33, says, under God, Adam was to stand at the head of the earthly family. 
to maintain the principles of the heavenly family. This would have brought peace and happiness, but the law that none liveth to himself, Satan was determined to oppose. He desired to live for self. He sought to make himself a center of influence. It was this that had incited rebellion in heaven, and it was man's acceptance of this principle that brought sin on earth. When Adam sinned, man broke away from the heaven-ordained center. A demon became the central power in the world. So God's plan was for Adam to stand at the head of the earthly family. Eve is his equal to stand and decide to be his helpmeet. But some people say, oh no, there was no difference between Adam and Eve. Actually, there was, even before the fall. Some further issues. So we have this women's ordination noncompliance issue where those who were not in favor of what's been voted at the General Conference are usurping the authority of the General Conference in session in the name of individual conscience, thus rejecting God's highest delegated authority on earth. And I'm going to show you some statements about that. So we have this current church crisis. How did we get here? Authority in the church. Testimonies, volume 3, page 492. I have been shown that no man's judgment should be surrendered to the judgment of any one man. And if you stop right there, those who are not happy with what's happened so far would say, yes, that's what I believe. I'm not going to surrender my judgment. But she says to any one man. But when the judgment of the general conference, which is the highest authority that God has upon the earth, is exercised, private independence and private judgment must not be maintained, but be surrendered. Your error was in pursuit persistently maintaining your private judgment of your duty against the voice of the highest authority the Lord has upon the earth. Now, some would say, oh, but Ellen White says she can no longer regard the voice of the General Conference as the voice of God, and she has a clarifying statement, which I'm going to show you a little bit later, which shows that that only applied to when two or three men were making a decision, not when a General Conference in session makes a decision. So, Let's look now um, at this issue briefly. The General Conference in session has voted no three times on women's ordination, 1990, 1995, and 2015. Let's look briefly at what was voted. Now, here's, here's the statement that was voted prior to this section. There's a statement that says we support the work of women doing ministry. And by the way, this is a misconception. People say that those who are opposed to women's ordination are opposed to women in ministry. And, and I'm here to say, no, women are supposed to be in ministry. And I do agree that they should be paid equally for the work that they do. But they are not to be ordained to a position of authority in the church the way God has set up authority. So here's what the, the motion was in 1990. In view of the widespread lack of support for the ordination of women to the gospel ministry in the world church and in view of the possible risk of disunity, dissension, and diversion from the mission of the church, we do not approve ordination of women to the gospel ministry. And that motion was passed by a vote of 1173 to 377, so it had a nearly 76% to 24% margin. That was in 1990. Well, the North American division came along five years later and said, we realize that much of the world field doesn't want women's ordination, but our division would like for it to happen, so we're going to ask the general conference for a variance within our division. So here was the motion that was um, voted upon in 1995 in Utrecht in the Netherlands, and it reads, the general conference vests in each division the right to authorize the ordination of individuals within its territory in harmony with established policy. In addition, where circumstances do not deem it inadvisable, a division may authorize the ordination of qualified individuals without regard to gender. In divisions where the division executive committee takes specific actions approving the ordination of women to the gospel ministry, women may be ordained to serve in those divisions. So this was then presented to the delegates on the floor. The president of the North American division, Alfred C. McClure, at that time, spoke for 20 minutes in favor of the motion. Um, then P. Gerard Domstik, just for full disclosure, he is my father-in-law, um, spoke for 20 minutes um, against the motion. And then Dr. Raul Detterin, retired dean of the seminary, closed with a 20-minute presentation in favor of the motion. Now, um, if you look at the presentations by Dr. Domsteeks and Dr. Detterin, and I know Dr. Domsteeks is on YouTube, they were not arguing about whether or not um, there can be variance within the division. The argument was, is women's ordination biblical or is it not biblical? So the vote was primarily about the, whether or not women's ordination is biblical or not biblical. So after those presentations, there was um, debate on the floor for a good hour or two. 
Um, and the motion failed by a vote of 1481 to 673. Nearly 69% voted no, 31% voted yes. So the World Church says, no, we do not want divisions to go on their own on this issue. We want to stay united as a world church. And the prevailing opinion from the delegates was we don't believe that women's ordination is biblical. Well, obviously, North American division was very unhappy about that outcome. And after 1995, um, continued to agitate the issue. Um, At the 2010 General Conference session, a request was made from a delegate from the North American division asking that the theology of ordination be studied. And so this led to the development of the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. Now, Theology of Ordination Study Committee was largely composed of scholars and Bible students from the North American Division. So it wasn't necessarily representative of the entire world field, but it did reflect some of the prevailing thoughts throughout the world field about what um, what is thought on this issue. Now, there was one key point of agreement, and that is that ordination is biblical. Because some people are out there saying, now, ordination isn't even biblical, it's Catholic. Well, then why does Ellen White have a chapter in the book Desire of Ages entitled, He Ordained Twelve? Now, interestingly, because, again, my father-in-law and mother-in-law were on this committee, they said that those in favor of women's ordination say, we don't accept Ellen White as an authority to say that ordination is biblical. But anyway... um, Ellen White says he ordained 12. You read it from the Bible itself. He ordained 12. And the con, the concept of ordination is definitely a biblical concept. And there was consensus among the study committee that ordination is biblical. So if people tell you ordination is Catholic, don't buy into that. Jesus ordained 12, the 12 disciples. Now, beyond that, though, there wasn't agreement. There were three different views on women's ordination. One group said that it's biblical. Another, the second group says it's not biblical, and then there was what was called the third option, and that is that women's ordination is not biblical, but it can still be allowed, and they used the history of Israel in asking for a king to say, look, we can just allow for it. Now, let me just say this in brief. Do we want to use a model of apostasy as an argument in favor of promoting an idea? I'm just trying to be kind and fair here. Because when Israel had a king... God says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. But I'm going to let you have a king because you want it and you keep asking for it and you keep asking for it and you keep asking for it, so fine, here, have a king. And you're going to be sorry for it once you have a king. And once they had the king, Saul ended up being pretty bad. Now David turned out pretty well other than his incident with Bathsheba and his numbering of the the people of Israel. But then after David, Solomon starts off good and turns off and out into a disaster. And then you get to Rehoboam, and Rehoboam comes along, and he's a complete disaster, and the kingdom becomes divided. And when the kingdom becomes divided and the northern ten tribes split off, they never had a righteous king and remained in apostasy from that point to the end. Eighty-three percent of the tribes were lost permanently. So I'm sorry, with all due respect... Let's not use a model of apostasy for God's last day church as an argument in favor of something. We're trying to get to the heavenly Canaan. Let's not go backwards into apostasy to say, well, it's not biblical, but God allowed for apostasy in Israel so we can allow for apostasy now. We want to follow what the Bible says. So then the motion was debated. After your prayerful study on ordination from the Bible, the writings of Ellen G. White, and the reports of the study commissions, and after your careful consideration of what is best for the church and the fulfillment of its mission, is it acceptable for division executive committees, as they deem it, may deem it appropriate, in their territories to make provision for the ordination of women to the gospel ministry, yes or no? This motion was basically created... Um, based on the fact that the Ordination Study Committee hadn't reached consensus, so they brought it to the world field, uh, the general conference in session. This motion was debated for several hours, if you were there. Um, this only happened three and a half years ago, so we all could be there to to watch online or be there in person to listen. And if you listen to the debate, it was almost exclusively about whether women's ordination is biblical. There was a little bit on division variance, but not much. The final vote was 1381 no, 977 yes. It was 58% no, 41% yes. And so 
some have pointed out that, you know, look, the margin keeps getting smaller. And what I would say is, you know, you've had 20 to 25 years to agitate this issue, and the world church still is saying no. Um, and it's still a pretty decisive margin. 17, 17 percentage point margin is a decisive margin. Now, let's look at what Ellen White says again. Testimonies, Volume 3, 492, says that the General Conference is the highest authority that God has upon the earth. Three times God has spoken through the highest authority that he has. Despite that, many in the church refuse to accept and acknowledge this authority. Now, I will say this and take this for what it's worth. It is possible that because some continue to agitate and push for this, it's possible that someday the general conference in session, if time should last, will vote to authorize this to happen. My personal belief is that if it does happen, it will be a similar scenario as God saying to Israel, fine, you want a king, have him. I told you no three times. That was my will. And I said three times no, and you couldn't take no for an answer, so I'm going to give you what you want now. Now, I still have faith to believe and hope that God's church will continue to follow what the Bible says and will not allow for that to happen. But it is possible that if that were to happen, that would be why God would allow for it. But he said no three times. Now, Testimonies, Volume 9, page 260, this is where Ellen White makes things very clear. I have often been instructed by the Lord that no man's judgment should be surrendered to the judgment of any other one man. Never should the mind of one man or the minds of a few men be regarded as sufficient in wisdom and power to control the work and to say what plans shall be followed. So in other words, if this was just the president of the general conference and one or two of his associates making a guiding policy for the entire world field, that would not be appropriate. But this is not what we're referring referring to when we refer to the authority of the general conference. Notice this next paragraph, but when in a general conference the judgment of the brethren assembled from all parts of the field is exercised, private independence and private judgment must not be stubbornly maintained but surrendered. Never should a laborer regard as a virtue the persistent maintenance of his position of independence contrary to the decision of the general body. And friends, we're seeing that in the church right now. People are saying, my rights and my conscience are causing me to go against the voted decision of the world church in session. And we're setting up a papal authority in the church. But listen, the Pope, you realize there's a huge difference. The Pope is invested with authority by the Catholic Church to make policy on his own when he speaks as one man. He can do that. He has that authority. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a general conference in session, which is representative of the entire world field. So then she says, because people say, oh, well, she said that she can't regard the voice of the general conference anymore as the voice of God. She says, at times when a small group of men entrusted with the general management of the work have in the name of the general conference sought to carry out unwise plans and to restrict God's work, I have said that I could no longer regard the voice of the general conference represented by these few men as the voice of God. But this is not saying that the decisions of a general conference composed of an assembly of duly appointed representative men from all parts of the field should not be respected. God has ordained that the representatives of his church from all parts of the earth, when assembled in a general conference, shall have authority. And then she goes on to say um, a few other things. But when a general conference in session with a representative group of delegates makes a decision, that decision shall have authority. Now, let's make some modern applications. God had invested Moses with authority to lead his people. God spoke with Moses face to face. Moses was invested with divine authority to execute God's will for his people. Korah rebelled against that authority and stirred up God's people to follow his insubordination. So what's happening now? Again, God has invested the general conference in session with authority to direct and lead his church. Now, we do not have a living prophet like Moses that speaks to God face to face as did Moses, but the prophet that God gave to his last day church says that the general conference in session is his highest authority on earth. Thus, the general conference in session is invested with divine authority to execute God's will for his last day church. 
The General Conference leadership, including the President and the General Conference Executive Committee, are responsible for implementing what is voted at a General Conference in session. Now, I've heard some people say that the current General Conference President is assuming papal authority and he's exercising kingly power. And my response is, clearly, no, he's not. You want to know what kingly power looks like? Kingly power would be to say, okay, a representative decision was made by the world church, but I'm not going to follow that decision. I'm going to do what I think is best. That's kingly authority, where one man calls the shots. The general conference president is simply carrying out what the world church in session as a representative body made as a decision, he's carrying that out. That's not kingly authority, that's representative authority. And it's the general conference in session that has been invested with the highest authority, and then the leadership of the general conference is to carry out what the session votes. So here we are in our current crisis. There are two unions in North America along with some others outside of North America. But in 2012, these two unions voted to proceed with ordaining without regard to gender. Now, in and of itself, that's already problematic because general conference policy doesn't allow for that. Um, But when you say without regard to gender, that does open up the door to beyond even men and women, if you think about it. Um, Now, they have not backed down from their votes despite being out of harmony with what has been voted at the General Conference in session in 1990, 1995, and 2015. As a result of the ongoing non the General Conference Executive Committee voted at the 2018 Annual Council to start a process of dealing with non-compliant entities. That document passed by a vote of 185 to 124, so nearly 60% to 40%, so a slightly higher margin than San Antonio. Um, Shortly after the annual council, the North American Division held its year-end meeting. At this meeting, the president of the North American Division said that the North American Division would continue to agitate the issue of women's ordination despite the votes by the General Conference. They also voted to discuss with the General Conference of coming into financial parity within two or three years. They're not happy that they're turning in more tithe to the GCs and other divisions, and they passed the vote. Um, by 57% to 43% that they want their tithe amount to reduce from 6% to 2%. And the the um, treasurer of the general conference was there, and he says, you're voting out based on a motion. And there was clearly an element of this vote being taken as a response to dissatisfaction with what has happened at the general conference. So there's an ongoing crisis here. As in the rebellion, of course, certain entities within the church are refusing to submit to God's delegated authority on earth. In Korah's day, Moses was God's appointed leader to delegate the authority of God. In our day, it's the general conference in session that is God's delegated authority. So here's a question. Why is the general conference in session the highest authority that God has on earth? Well, here's the answer. Because God can more clearly reveal his will through the voice of the entire world field than he can through one church, one conference, one union, one division, or me personally. It's this idea that God can more easily lead through us than through me. Does that make sense? Because there's less opportunity for rigged votes and all of this, even though there's going to be some politics and stuff that may go on, God still will have control over everything by speaking through a representative body. Now, this idea of submission. Submission to authority acknowledges that there may be times when submission is required when there is disagreement. So, Submission to authority is not really submission if we say, I will only submit if you can show me why I should agree with you. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it if you can show me why. Look, authority is in place because sometimes there's a disagreement and the authority has to make a decision that the body needs to follow. Sometimes God doesn't have to explain why. Some, there's some things that we may not fully understand until we get to heaven. Now, there's a biblical order of authority. 
Um, because, you know, in Ephesians 5.21, it says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And people use that to say, see, men submit to women and women submit to women, to men. It's mutual submission. That's not what that verse means. If you follow all the way down, you see this order of authority where children submit to parents. Children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Wives submit to their husbands. That's Ephesians 5.22. The husband is the head of the wife and submits to Christ and loves his wife as Christ loves the church. So men lead in the home and in the church. That's this biblical order of authority. The husband is the head of the wife in the home. And First Timothy 3 says that if a man cannot rule his own house, well, how can he take care of the church of God? So Christ is the head of the church, but Christ delegates authority in the church to overseers, such as pastors and elders. You can see that in First Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. The church is to submit to Christ and his authority. And again, the highest authority on earth is the general conference in session. But we have a problem with authority. Many are resisting authority in the church. Conscience over God's highest authority is really the issue of the crisis, or it's the name of the game for many today. That's why we have this crisis, because people are not willing to submit. Lack of submission in the home and in the church ultimately leads to lack of submission to Christ and his delegated authority. Now, many advocates of this issue are comparing themselves to Martin Luther, and they're comparing the general conference to the papacy, but the, and, and, True reformers are uh, were viewed as rebels back in the Protestant Reformation, so they say we're the reformers that are being viewed as rebels. However, those who sincerely think they are advocates of reform are actually rebels when opposing God's delegated authority. So the Catholic Church was corrupt through and through their system of indulgences where you could buy eternal life by paying for indulgences. These were the things that the reformers were speaking out against along with their false understanding of righteousness by faith. But this is God's remnant church and we have been given God's truth for this time and God has led this church to its understanding of truth from scripture and the things that we believe. And so when we oppose God's delegated authority, we're not reformers, we're rebels. So many are calling for unity in the church, but they're saying unity and diversity. Why can't we just allow people to do what they want to do? But the only way that unity happens is when all parties recognize and accept their role or place under rightful authority. That's the only way that unity can happen. Now, think about this. Unity could have been brought about in heaven only if Lucifer submitted to Christ's authority. There was no other way. We couldn't have, okay, like, okay, let's just have unity and diversity in heaven by having Lucifer and angels, his angels have their diverse way of doing things over here, and Christ and the other angels will be over here. Let's just all get along. No, there has to be a submission to authority. So the cry of unity while not submitting to rightful authority is really hypocritical. True unity will never occur if we resist being in our place in relation to the rightful authorities that God has placed in our lives. Does that make sense? If we're not willing to submit to the rightful authority that God has placed in our lives, there's always going to be disunity because there will be a lack of respect for authority and of decisions that are made even when there is disagreement. Now, I'm not calling for coercion to make people believe something that they don't believe, but what I am saying is, and I certainly believe there is a biblical truth on this issue, but what I am saying is that there has to be a willingness and an understanding of submission to proper biblical authority, or we're never going to be united. So where are we headed? Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 205, shortly before I sent out the testimonies regarding the efforts of the enemy to undermine the foundation of our faith through the dissemination of seductive theories, I had read an incident about a ship in a fog meeting an iceberg. For several nights I slept but little. I seemed to be bowed down as a cart beneath sheaves. One night a scene was clearly presented before me. A vessel was upon the waters in a heavy fog. Suddenly the lookout cried, Iceberg just ahead! There, towering high above the ship, was a gigantic iceberg. An authoritative voice cried out, Meet it. 
There was not a moment's hesitation. It was a time for instant action. The engineer put on full steam, and the man at the wheel steered the ship straight into the iceberg. With a crash, she struck the ice. There was a fearful shock, and the iceberg broke into many pieces, falling with a noise like thunder to the deck. The passengers were violently shaken by the force of the collisions, but no lives were lost. The vessel was injured, but not beyond repair. She rebounded from the contact, trembling from stem to stern like a living creature. Then she moved forward on her way. Well, I knew the meaning of this representation. I had my orders. I had heard the words like a voice from our captain, meet it. I knew what my duty was and that there was not a moment to lose. The time for decided action had come. I must, without delay, obey the command, meet it. You know, friends, sometimes... We're like the prophets hiding in the caves that Obadiah was feeding during the time of Elijah. It's like, I'm just going to hide and let other people deal with this, and I'm not going to let my voice be heard in the church. But listen, Christ needs spiritual warriors who, in a Christ-like way, are going to meet this crisis that is coming. And I believe that there are many silent voices who don't want to be known as agitators. But listen, and this is something that happens in the church, and I've talked about this with some of my friends. You realize that the progressive wing of the church, they play this long game of taking over institutions and trying to control policy and to make the church more liberal because they don't necessarily have this belief in an imminent return of Jesus. They're just trying to make the church more community-focused and seeker-sensitive and whatever the case may be. Conservatives believe that Jesus is coming in five years, so I don't need to put my efforts into the institution of the church. I can just kind of do my own thing. And so the liberals have taken over here. That's what's happened. And we're not willing to fight the good fight of faith. And there are there is a need, a desperate need for God's people to meet this crisis without delay. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 380. The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. It remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out. The chaff separated from the precious wheat. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless it must take place. Now notice this, and this is the difference between the false gospel and the true gospel, which we're going to talk about in our last session this afternoon. None but those who have been overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and true, without spot or stain of sin, without guile in their mouth. So when the church appears as about to fall, those who go through and remain are the overcomers. And then education, page 57. This is as we're wrapping up here. The greatest want of the world is the want of men. Men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Where are those people in the church today? Are we hiding behind a fear of being labeled when there is a need for people in the church to stand up for his for what is right, just remember, we, the people, are the church. We have a voice in the church. And I know people who, they don't want to go to constituency session. They just want to stay home and, oh, you can go. And people aren't willing to become invested or involved to make sure that the church stays on the path that God has appointed it to be. So here's my final appeal. Stay with the church. Don't leave. Now is the time that we need people to especially make their voices heard. Make your voice heard. Stop making excuses for saying, well, it's not my place to speak up. You know, I've had to be in, in situations and in board meetings where apostasy was being sanctioned, where I was the only voice that was willing to speak up against something. And if that's the case, so be it. Be that person to make your voice heard. Like I said earlier, we have too many silent members hiding in the caves like Obadiah's prophets where Elijah is the the prophet who gives the message and then after he gives the message, everyone goes off into hiding. 
when the message is given with clarity and when God starts to move in his church the way he did with Elijah, that's not the time to go hiding in the caves. That's the time, the time to mobilize as an army to speak for what is right. You know, this whole issue of authority is also so inconsistent. It's amazing to me. So you have entities that won't submit to the authority of the world church, but there's a territory somewhere here in North America right now who doesn't want its own lay members who have organized to speak in favor of the world church, they're saying you can't promote your ideology in favor of the world church because it's too divisive for our territory and we're going to use our authority to keep your voice silent. So we have authority and we're going to exercise it, but we won't submit to the authority above us. I mean, we have reached a point of of serious confusion and crisis, and God needs people who will stand for what's right. Stand for the right, though the heavens fall, be part of the solution, and by God's grace, when he comes, we will be found faithful, and thankfully, we were told that a crisis is coming. Hang on to the ship, hang on to Jesus, and may we be found faithful when he comes. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we don't know how all of this is going to play out, We know that you are in control and that you control the end from the beginning. Forgive us for when we doubt your leading. Forgive us for when we've been weak and cowardly, not willing to speak up and to make our voice heard. Give us the grace and the courage to speak up and to stand for what's right and to be on the Lord's side. May we not be neutral in the time of crisis, but may we be on the Lord's side and faithful when he comes. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.